Welcome to Disrupting Japan, straight talk from Japan's most successful entrepreneurs. I'm Tim Romero, and thanks for joining me. Today, we're going to do something a little bit different. We're going to talk about the state of venture capital in Japan. If you're raising money in Japan or thinking of investing in Japan, you'll really want to listen to this. Now, I normally don't interview VCs on disrupting Japan. It's not that VCs aren't interesting. I've got nothing against VCs. I mean, some of my best friends are VCs. No, it's, it's just that VCs have a tendency to talk in the abstract. They talk about general trends and their portfolio companies. And I've always found that it's far more informative to go straight to the source. To talk to the founders about what they specifically are doing to capitalize or respond to those market trends. To have them tell you about the real challenges their startups are facing right now and how that fits into the bigger, more important society wide stories. Well, today, we're going to do both. Today, we sit down and talk with James Riney of Coral Capital. And we examine the business of venture capital, how VCs view advertising and customer acquisition, and what causes some VCs to make money and others to lose money. It's not exactly like it is for startups, but it's surprisingly close. We talk about the most important changes happening in Japan's startup community, of course. But we also dig into the challenges facing venture capital funds in Japan and Coral Capital in particular. We talk about what VCs look for when evaluating a pitch, things you should never tell a potential investor, what the next few years of venture funding in Japan will look like, and hopefully we'll clear up some of the confusion about the difference between seed and pre seed and pre Series A and Series A rounds. But you know, James tells that story much better than I can. So let's get right to the interview. So we're sitting here with James Riney, the founding partner and CEO of Coral Capital and former head of 500 Startups Japan. And we're going to be talking about venture capital. Yes, it's good to be back, Tim. It's great to have you back on. Man, a lot has changed since, what was that, four years ago? Yeah, it must have been... Three, three and a half years ago, something like that. Yeah. 2015, right? Something like that, yeah. Man, so much has changed about venture capital and startups in Japan. And we'll, we'll get into that. But first, I want to dig into venture capital as a business. What's the, the business model behind venture capital? Because mm. that's something that not many startup founders understand. Yeah, I mean, uh, I think especially in Japan, but even, even broadly as you know, the venture ecosystem the fundraising side for venture firms is a little bit opaque. And maybe uh, some founders don't necessarily realize that, especially the sort of startup funds like us, we have to go out and raise our own capital. <laughs> yeah, yeah. In, in much the same way startups do. But actually, even before that, so stepping back before that, when, when someone decides to start a fund, what do they do? Do they start with like an investing thesis? Do they start with a couple of high net worth individuals? Yeah, so in a lot of ways, we have to tell a story as to how we're going to win in the market. And uh, in our case, you know, money is our product and money is commoditized. Yeah. So what we have to uh, sell to investors is why we have some sort of unique advantage and why entrepreneurs are going to take our money as opposed to the other 10, 20 guys in the market, right? And then also the founding team, the, the partners of the fund, they may or may not have history together. So in a lot of ways, it's similar to a seed stage startup in the sense that, you know, we don't know how the, the dynamics among the management team are going to go and then how are they going to market and what kind of investments they're going to make. So in the case of like Coral or 500, what is the pitch to the investors? What is that advantage you're selling them? So in our case, we, we launched our first fund under the 500 Startups brand. So the first story for us was selling the fact that there weren't brand name Silicon Valley firms really investing in Japan. And so the selling proposition was we are a Silicon Valley style firm operating in Japan. And because we you know, bring, are bringing that sort of know-how and that brand, 
entrepreneurs will choose us over others. Who who are the investors? Are they are they banks? Are they pension funds? Are they other startup funds? Yeah. So this is a dynamic that's sort of unique to Japan. So in Silicon Valley, a lot of the firms will raise from institutional investors. In fact, most of the capital is from institutional investors. So that includes pension funds, insurance companies, endowments, etc. Uh, whereas in Japan, a lot of the capital for startups come from corporates. And so that's in the form of corporate venture capital or in the form of funds like us that have to raise from corporates. Up until recently, there hasn't been a lot of institutional capital being invested into the market. But now some of the funds, including us, are able to raise from these institutional investors. And so it's, it's starting to move and starting to change. Why is it changing? Do you think it's just because... Institutional investors feel that startups are a more safe or valid investment or that the number of startups have grown big enough that it's, it's an investable asset class for them. It's a bit of both, right? So institutional investors want to, I mean, they're unlike corporates, they're investing for purely financial return, right? And for uh, institutional investors, you know, they've seen the likes of Mercari uh, that grew to multi-billion dollar IPO within just five years. And then we have like Raxel and a few other like pretty big exits in the ecosystem. And so institutional investors look at those returns and they, they feel that there's actually something here domestically. Um, mind you, a lot of these managers uh, in the institutional firms have invested outside of Japan into you know the top tier firms in Silicon Valley. So they're familiar with it as an asset class, but they haven't really looked to Japan as a place to get similar returns. Okay. And when you're pitching these investors, so obviously you have to pitch your, your strategy, the advantage you have. Do you or do most funds pitch a specific target? Say we're going to be investing in B2B software, or we're going to be investing in life sciences, or we're going to be investing in anything we think is interesting? We are a sector agnostic firm. If you look at all the top tier firms in the world, almost all of them are not sector specific. They don't focus on a particular area. Now, with that said, from a marketing perspective on both the fundraising side and the investing side, focusing on a particular area could be important. For example, AI or blockchain are like hot topics in Japan right now because it's a specific uh, mandate and it checks boxes for a lot of these corporate executives. They feel more comfort in investing in a fund like that, whether or not it's, it's viable in terms of creating uh, superior returns. Mm-hmm. So are most funds general or are they focused? I would say most funds are general, but the sort of trade-off you have here if you focus on a particular area is that even though you might see all the AI and blockchain companies, you might not see any of the other companies, right? right and so that, right. that's sort of the, the trade-off that you have. And in Japan specifically, I don't think that the market is big enough to specialize in a particular area. There's only you know a handful of really big exits and you know they vary across like multiple different areas. And so you don't really know where the, the great companies are going to come out of. And if you're pigeonholed into a particular area, you're going to miss out. There do seem to be a lot of these targeted funds in Japan. There's a drone fund. There's, there's a couple of AI funds. Right. It's probably more feasible to have a broad perspective because if you have an idea of where you want to invest, but the dream team never presents themselves, then it really doesn't matter, actually, whether you had that thesis or not. Yeah, that's true. And... and Trends come and go pretty quickly in startups. Exactly, yeah. Okay, once you've, once you've raised the money, and for a, a seed fund, how big is a fund is one of those, how, how long is a piece of string? But you know, seed funds are like, what, $10 million to like $80 million, $100 million funds? Okay, so in Silicon Valley, it's evolved quite a bit, right? And so before the Series A, you have angel, pre-seed, yeah, seed, yeah. post-seed, pre-series A, and so it's just like, there's so much fragmentation, right? Because the market has just evolved so much. Well, actually, so, let's, let's dig into that. Are those well-defined terms? Because they used to be. I think they're less well-defined than people like to think. So I always um, thought like series A was when a price was set and like convertible notes are all pre-series A. Right. Is, is that still the case or? No, it's not, not It's not the case. Yeah, it's not the case. You know, you, you might have uh, a couple of 
seed rounds where it's a, it's raised on a convertible note or equity. And then someone will come in as a lead investor in like a pre-series A, for example, or a mango, mango seed, I think I heard another term in Silicon Valley. And, uh, and in that case, like they might want to just price the round and, and clean up the cap table, right? But um, what's happened in Silicon Valley is that you have seed funds that are like 200 million now, right? And so what's happened is that people have moved up. And so the, the seed funds, even though they still call themselves seed, Actually, they're, they, are, they have evolved into the Series A funds of the past, right? And so everyone's sort of like moved up, right? Sequoia has also raised a bigger fund. And sort of like round inflation. It's round inflation, yeah. People have sort of like moved up. They still pretty much call themselves the same thing. But the reality is that there is much more fragmentation and they're playing in just different spaces. In, I mean, I know Silicon Valley kind of exists in a world of its own. We read about like these, you know, five million dollar seed rounds and ten million dollar seed rounds, and and that's not a seed. That's not like a startup. (laughs) You can't like go searching for product market fit and running experiments when you're, you know, your plan is to spend five million dollars in the first twelve months. Right. Depends on what you're doing, but (laughs) (laughs) what kind of experiment it is. (laughs) Are there still like what were traditionally called seed rounds? People writing ten thousand dollar, fifty thousand dollar checks. Are we talking about Silicon Valley or Japan? Uh, Both. Okay. Um, Well, yeah, in Silicon Valley, of course, you know, there's like the friends and family, you know, the angel round, Um, and so that still exists. But in Japan, a seed round was, you know, you raise a hundred thousand, it was like, oh wow, you know. Um, and then a Series A was like one to three million. It was like, oh wow, you know. Now that's sort of bumped up, and so I think, you know, a seed round is probably like six hundred k to one million in Japan, mm-hmm. uh, and then a Series A will be probably something like three to ten on the bigger side. And there's, so there's more capital in the market. Funds like us have been able to raise bigger funds, and so um, there's more capital to deploy, and that sort of creates that same sort of inflation that you see in Silicon Valley. So mostly seed and Series A these days, it's just the size of the round determines what people call it. it. Yeah, it's the size of the round. And to be honest with you, a lot of it is just messaging. In some cases, you might want to call it a Series A. In other cases, you might want to call it a pre-Series A. Because uh, the later the stage, the more down, more that uh, downstream, downstream investors want to see progress. And so if you're considered Series B, they'll want to compare you with other Series B deals. Uh, and so you'll be expected to have you know, better KPIs. All right. All right. That makes sense. Getting back to the, the business model of VC. So now that you've, you've raised your fund, how do you make money? So VCs make fun- money from a management fee and carry. So the management fee is 2% usually on the assets under management. You raise a $100 million fund, you have $2 million per year that you can work with. Now, with that, you have to pay staff, you have to pay rent, you have to pay lots of different things. So that's your sort of like operating budget. But the carry is where fund managers really make their money. Carry is basically the percentage of profit that you receive on the fund return. Okay. So, so basically, if you make whatever percent of the returns you make for your investors, you would keep 20% of that. Exactly. Now, the 2% annual fee... I mean, if you're running a $500 million fund, that, that's a lot of money. But there's a lot of like $10 million funds or $20 million funds. Right. And you're looking at like $200,000, right. $300,000, which, I mean, if, if you put that on the table in a big pile, that's a right. lot of money. But that's not a lot of money yeah, to, to run yeah, every year. It's not. Basically, you know, a lot of people will raise uh, small funds like that just to get started and put some points on the board. And then uh, raise a bigger fund off of the momentum of their investing uh, from previous fund. So how do these these micro funds support themselves? Are they they subsidized externally? Do do the partners just pay most of the expenses out of their pockets? How how does that work? There's a lot of different scenarios. Uh, in some scenarios, the fund managers have had some sort of previous exit. And so they don't really need the management fees and they might pay other staff, but in general, they won't really take a big salary. In other cases, as you're alluding to, they'll run events, they'll do, uh, especially in Japan, they'll, be, they'll do uh, like open innovation consulting kind of stuff, right. you know, uh, for big corporates. Um, and so that'll generate some sort of consulting related cash flow. Um, and that's how they, they run things, they keep the lights on. 
Before you mentioned that money was kind of a, an undifferentiated product, right? And, and that's true on your, on your um, sell side as well when you're getting your investors. But now that you've got your fund together and you're looking for startups to invest in, you're still kind of an undifferentiated product, right? Right. So how do you convince startups to let you as opposed to the other funds invest? There are many sort of components here. One is just reputation. You know, if you have a reputation for investing in good companies, uh, you have a reputation for being a, a helpful partner for entrepreneurs, that will increase your ability to win deals. So within the deal sourcing process, there are three components. One is the finding Another one is the picking, and the last one is the winning. So the finding is knowing that the deal actually exists, right? And so, especially at seed stage, knowing that the deal exists is a lot harder because these deals are not covered by TechCrunch, right? They're not in the press. Now, the next one is the picking part. So the picking is, okay, amongst those deals that you've looked at, which one are you going to try to invest in? And then there's this last component that is underestimated and not really well known is the winning part. It's not a public market, so you can't just go and just buy any stock that you want to buy if you have the money. You have to convince the management that they should take your money as opposed to other people's money. And so the winning side is the critical component. And in a lot of cases, the hot deals, everyone knows it's a great deal. And so they want to invest in the, you know, In a lot of cases, there's, there's consensus that this is a strong team and they want to invest. And so you have to compete. Yeah. Yeah, so it's basically lead generation, lead qualification, and sales. Right. Um, basically, <laughs> fundamentally, yeah, yeah, it sells, it sells, um, and so reputation is one component. But then there's the other component on okay, outside of the money, what do you actually provide, right? right. And so what we've done outside of the money is we've ha- we have an in-house hiring manager that recruits two to three people per month for our portfolio companies. Uh, we have an in-house PR person that helps with making sure that they're getting into the press. We built a proprietary database of fundraising options so that you know they can raise da- downstream capital. And so we've built sort of sort of these functions in-house so that we're just not we're not just providing this money as a commodity. It's it's services uh, bundled up with that. That makes a lot of sense, and it's just my own question struck me as odd as soon as it came out of my mouth, simply because I've been raising funds for one project or another pretty much continuously over the last 30 years. Right. And the idea of VCs having to compete for startups is, is relatively new. <laughs> okay. you know? Right now, it's a seller's market. If right. you've got a good team and a, a, a bit of traction in your startup, you're going to have a lot of VCs who want to invest in you. But that wasn't the case, particularly in Japan, right. 10 or 15 years ago. Right. Have a lot of Japanese firms had trouble adapting to this new reality? I don't want to say that they've had trouble adapting to this new reality, but I, I do think that they've realized recently that they need to adapt. Okay. <laughs> and so, you know, we can't take all the credit for it, but yeah, I think it's fair to say that we were one of the first to really start providing services outside of just capital. And that mindset is quite different from someone that's thinking, okay, what we do is we raise money from investors, we invest it and just try to get a capital gain. Um, If you're LP focused rather than entrepreneur focused, when the market shifts to a seller's market like it is now, then you're going to struggle. Because all this time you've been serving the LPs when you really should have been serving the entrepreneurs. Right. It seems to me there's three kind of business models that can and do exist in VC. There's the one that you described, which is very entrepreneurial in its sense, where you are out generating leads and closing deals and being very proactive in, in selling your value add to the investors. There's the other model, which was traditionally the Japanese big VCs, which was we'll invest in you, we'll groom you for IPO. Right. And this is your track to IPO. Right. But it seems like that model is less and less attractive in Japan right now for, from the, the startup side. Yeah, no, I think so. So historically, you know, if you wanted to raise 20 million plus, it was very hard to do in Japan. Uh, And so a lot of companies would kind of at a necessity have to go to the public markets. And so the the positive side of that is that you get liquidity sooner. But the negative side is that if you go public and you're in hyper growth mode, immediately your shareholders shift to short term and they want to know every quarter whether you're going to be profitable. Right. And when you're growing, you're investing in growth, and you don't necessarily want to think about profitability um, if it means sacrificing growth. And so I think what it does is just stunts growth. And so you have maybe multiple $100 million exits, but if you had been more patient and invested in taking the entire market, maybe you could have had multiple billion-dollar uh, exits. 
traditionally the Japanese VC, it's it's been this this pipeline to IPO, you know, right. where where a US VC might assume 90% of their portfolio is going to go bankrupt and 10% will provide a fantastic return. Right. In Japan, it's always been kind of the other way, where 90% would have a nice stable IPO and 10%, you know, something would go wrong. Right. What you're talking about this 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 double down, this you know, more growth, uh, options to raise more and more money later, definitely goes against that safe, steady IPO. So how much is that changing among Japanese founders? I mean, are Japanese startup founders wanting to stay private longer and double down and roll the dice again? And are Japanese VCs okay with that? Are they resisting the trend? What's, what's happening there? So first of all, the, the 90% versus 10% uh, comment um, it's probably exaggerated, but I can see what you're saying. Mm-hmm. Um, there's definitely... Uh, yeah, you're, you're yeah. My, those numbers I yeah, just kind of pulled out of my... Yeah, yeah, but just <laughs> so the audience doesn't, get mis- doesn't misunderstand. Whether it's change or not, the answer is yes. Um, and so the number of 20 million plus rounds in private markets have increased quite a bit. And there's the outliers like Mercari, for example, that have raised mo- over 100 million in the private markets. And that has sort of like set the example that uh, you know you can raise that mo- that amount of money in the private markets and still have a spectacular return, and so this is influencing both founders and investors. So the founders are thinking, okay, maybe I shouldn't just look for a quick flip; like I should go for the unicorn, right? If the investors are keen to invest in the private markets, you sort of have this, you know, both both sides of the the marketplace are are um, are, are pushing for the the bigger exit. But I mean, from from my for my discussions with founders that have been on the show, I mean, there are definitely founders who are pushing for the larger exit, but it requires a really big shift in VC strategy. So are, are you seeing that shift either in the attitude of individual VCs or in the actual structure of Japanese VC funds? Yes, I'll give you a very, very, very easy signal that it's changing. As a, like, in addition to the, the size of the rounds increasing, the size of the funds are increasing. You know, you have Globus has, that have you know raised three hundred. I think they announced three hundred and sixty uh, million, roughly. Global Brain has also gotten much bigger. Will has gotten much bigger. Jafco has gotten bigger, and so all of the funds have gotten bigger. And it's a signal of the intention to invest growth capital. You know, especially in the case of Globus, it's a Japan-only VC, and so if they're raising that amount of money, they're raising it with the intention of investing quite a bit of money into the later stage later rounds stage as well. Right. And so, you know, when they announced it, part of their PR was that they can invest up to $50 million into one company. And so there's a clear intent there. That's a change in the market, thinking that, okay, we need to raise bigger funds so that we can capture that value. Yeah. So like 10, 15 years ago, a, a typical IPO, you might have a company with a, compl- with a, a market cap of like $20 million or $25 million. Right, which is insane, right? Yeah, it's insane. It's a Series long. A in the US. Right, right. <laughs> but if you've got companies that want to invest $50 million in one company, obviously that has to be later and, right. and more aggressive growth. Exactly. Okay, that's, that's a really good story. Yeah, if you invest $50 million, you, you, you have to go for a unicorn. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's two of those little IPO companies, right? Just right. buying them. Right, and you raise a fund like that, that means that your, your investing strategy is dependent on hitting those unicorns, right? Because yeah. um, remember, you have to 3 to 5x that, that fund. Okay. So getting back to your, your startup funnel, as it was, how you find companies to invest in. So how do you reach out? How do you find those deals? Is it uh, reputation? Do you actually do marketing? Is it a, kind of a personal network? So it's a combination of uh, a lot of things, but what's core to our strategy is that we've been very proactive about publishing helpful information for entrepreneurs. You know, you can think maybe uh, Andreessen Horowitz or uh, First Round in the U.S., they publish a lot of content, right? Y Combinator is another example of that. So because we're publishing a lot of content, we have a strong foothold in sort of like the mind share of entrepreneurs in Japan. And so when they want to raise money, we're at the top of the list in terms of where they're going to uh, talk to first. We also have a lot of introductions. And then even when we see, let's see, a, let's say a press release or a news about some interesting company somewhere, when we contact them, in pretty much all cases, we're able to, to meet with them because they've heard about us or they follow our blog. 
So what do the numbers look like for every, say, 100 companies you talk to? How many do you end up doing due diligence and seriously consider? And how many do you end up in investing in? So we're very fortunate in that we see 200 to 300 per month. Uh, and that's a lot in Japan. You know, we're trying to figure out what is the 100% uh, of the market. I actually don't know, but I don't imagine that it's probably not more than 300 per month in Japan. But in any case, we see that many companies and we invest in one or two. How do you make a decision? And I know that that's, that's probably too broad a question, but are there any uh, red flags and green flags? I mean, a red flag being something like if you see this in a pitch deck, you're just going to pass immediately on it and a green flag being if you see this in a pitch deck even if everything else looks a little questionable you're going to look look harder at this company right yeah i'll give you one that's top of mind right now and it's not necessarily a red flag it's just kind of it's a demotivator for whether i want to investigate this company at all for some reason in japan founders sometimes don't include a team slide in the deck so there is a great presentation about what they're doing And then I'm like, oh, man, this is really interesting. I wonder what team is pursuing this amazing idea. And I scroll all the way down, and I still don't see any slide about who is doing it. And it's insane. It's such a crazy thing because... Is that just because it's it's like a solo founder or... No, 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 no. In some cases where I'm really interested in the idea, I will reply and I say, can you add a team slide? But in other cases where I'm kind of so-so on the idea... I just don't even pursue it further because it's it's you know it's just a waste. I don't even know what who the team is and and I need more information to really assess whether I should meet them. And it's a strange dynamic in Japan where the team slide is not included or even if it is included, it'll just say like CEO, CTO, etc. or COO, you know. And so it won't include be any information beyond that in the sense of what they were doing in their previous companies uh, oh, okay. and you know, what they accomplished up to that point. You, know, you really have to sort of like dig in on that information to pull it out of them. Why, why do you suppose that is? Because it seemed to me, particularly at a seed stage, you're mostly investing in the team. Right. At the seed stage, you're investing in the team. So that I think that at different stages, the weight that you put on each category, it shifts, right? And so as the company progresses, for example, the weight that you put on traction gets it's higher in the early stages the, the weight on team is really really heavy right well that's and, the, you yeah. have a, you don't yeah, have traction you don't have to look traction. at yeah. Yeah, you don't have traction so so it's such a waste right in japanese you say motainai that there's no team slide all right okay and and what about a green flag something you see would would get you excited enough to really dig in even if everything else looks really questionable i think there's a few so one is they've already built the product and so they've had limited resources, but they've managed to at least ship product. That's a really strong signal, right? It means that this, com- this team can build. Even if there's zero traction, they've shipped it before they've even come to us. Another one is the depth of thinking in their pitch deck, like the organization of the information, uh, how they're thinking about the market, how they are going to attack the market. And like it's you know, very tactical in terms of like what they're going to do. It's not just strategy. You know, they're going to IPO in five years. Right. It's it's tactical in the sense that, you know, this guy has a relationship here and we're going to first approach this and et cetera, et cetera. And they may they may be wrong, but that's totally fine if they're wrong. It's just that they are thinking deeply about how they're going to approach it. Yeah, you can tell they have a a plan that they're executing. Exactly. Exactly. So those are strong signals there. And so we've invested in companies that just contacted us from our website and it was clear from their pitch deck that they were very smart and thinking very deeply about their market. And so, you know, we met them and ended up investing. All right. Okay. And um, kind of coming back to the, the, the business model of funds. So funds have a, a, a certain lifespan, right? Because you hear about seven-year funds or 10-year funds. What, what does that mean? Uh, in most cases, venture capital funds are 10 years. And so what that means is that the life of the fund is 10 years, but in most cases, the investment period is somewhere like two to three years, maybe in longer cases, five years. That's the capital deployment period. And so once you've invested, you planted your seeds, the 10-year period is your harvesting time. By the end of that period, hopefully you're getting IPOs, you're getting M&A, you're getting exits, right? You're getting liquidity. So, so if you raise... $100 million on a 10-year fund, the idea would be in the first 
two to three years, you would invest all of that capital. Yes. Yeah. And for the, the management fees, do those keep churning out at 2% the whole 10 years, or is it only that first three years? There's different approaches to this. Um, in general, the average is 2% over the life of the fund. In some cases, there's upfront, so there's like an investment period. And so that, okay. that might be 2.5% or something, or and in particular in private equity itself, it's maybe, you know, two percent for the first three four years and then like it goes it steps down from there and so there's different dynamics there but in general the average is two percent well that makes sense because you know for the first two or three years where you're actually having to evaluate 200 300 startups exactly that's the bulk of the work right and then the last few years it's just financial filings and compliance and accounting right yeah it's portfolio management i mean there's still you know you might sit on a board you might help out with fundraising on next rounds like there's still stuff that you do Mm. but it's just not as active right so during the life of the fund, you know, you're going to have some of those investments are going to go bankrupt. Uh, some of them will be bought and IPO'd. Right. But at the end of the 10 years, you're still going to have a handful of companies that maybe have evolved into like safe, stable companies that aren't going to go bankrupt and they aren't going to IPO. And what, what do you do with those at the end of the 10 years? Yeah, these zombie companies, right, yeah. as they say in Japan. Well, for the owners, they're not zombies, but... Yeah, yeah they're not zombies. <laughs> they're zombies for us. Uh, there's a few things that you can do. So one is, in our case, uh, we have a two-year extension. Let's say that we have, like, you know, an Airbnb in the portfolio, right? So it's not a zombie company, but it's just taken a long time to go public. At the GB discretion, you would extend it for two years. Then there is other uh, ways where you can sell to another investor. And then there are certain scenarios where, let's say, that there's an LP that doesn't feel comfortable waiting it out longer. And so that LP will sell their stake in your fund. You know, there's lots of levers that you can pull. So there, there's like a, a secondary market for these, you know, I hate the term zombie companies because it's, you know, they might be perfectly valid business entities. They're just right. not going to rep- provide a return for the investor. Right. So there's a, a secondary market for these? I mean, who, who buys a company like that? Well, or buys a minority stake in a company like there's that? A better, there's a better uh, secondary market in the U.S. I think in Japan, it's, it's harder to find buyers. There are a few funds that focus specifically on that, but I think it's just two or three, something like that. It's very oh. small. As to who they are, besides VCs, um, there's also private equity firms and there's also uh, corporates. You know, they might have a strategic angle there. Or there are also angels that just want to invest in a company that maybe has some strong cash flow. Oh, all right. So for, for startups in the, the growth cycle, you're raising multiple rounds. You're, you're getting bigger and bigger rounds at higher and higher valuations. And for the fund managers, it seems to work kind of the same. Like the next fund you want to raise needs to be bigger than your last fund. And it's, I mean, is that, that, that looks like how it is. Is that yeah. really the case? No, I mean, like there's, um, there's definitely that sort of dynamic where you, you step up and you go, you go bigger. In our case, we stepped up a little bit, but actually we were very fortunate to have much more interest than we were looking for. And so uh, we raised our, our fund in just two months, but we, we could have gone bigger. And the reason that we didn't go bigger is because when you go bigger as a fund, you have to shift your strategy. Mm. And so we felt comfortable with our current strategy with a certain size of fund, but knew that if we had gone to, let's say, you know, over 100, 150, 200 million, we would have to shift from seed to really doing series A and series B. And we didn't feel like we sort of had mastered that yet. And so we wanted to take it little by little. Um, but there is pressure to go bigger later just because... Um, I think that people sort of look at it as positive momentum. Yeah, but it, I mean, it seems to me you might have a VC who is incredibly talented at finding early stage seed startups and working with founders and adding huge value there that might be terrible at Late the more, yeah, yeah, the yeah. more uh, MBA spreadsheet style exactly. late stage analysis. Right, right. No, that's very true. Um, and I think that there are disciplined fund managers that think small is beautiful and they stay, they stay small. And there's even, you know, some of the famous ones like, uh, like USV that have consistently had the same size fund. Uh, so they exist. But I think that what's happening, in, particularly in the U.S., is that because you have the likes of SoftBank coming in with ridiculous amounts of money, 
and driving up prices, even funds like Sequoia uh, and Andreessen Horowitz are feeling pressure to, to move up. And so that's a dynamic as well. It's not necessarily that they just want to make their fund bigger. It's that they have to do that to compete. Right, right. Well, how has SoftBank kind of changed the game in late-stage capital? It's inflated prices. So, uh, you know, SoftBank, because they have so much capital to deploy, they, one, are not particularly price-sensitive, and two, because they have so much capital, they can buy ownership in the company by paying up, by just deploying more capital. And so, you know, if you are a relatively smaller, like small relative to SoftBank, let's say you manage a billion-dollar fund, um, right? <laughs> so a little, a little billion-dollar fund. Yeah, a yeah. small little billion-dollar fund. <laughs> For you, it might be fine to lead the round with like 20 million or 50 million. But once SoftBank comes in and says, no, we'll do it for 100 million for the same percentage. Um, from an entrepreneur's perspective, it's like, okay, which one I choose? I mean, I really like these guys, but yeah, 100 guess, million. And so there's that I, sort I, of if pressure. If it's a few percentage points difference, you might go with the guys that you think will add a little more business value. Or, right. But yeah. But, you know, and, but when it's, there's just a, such a big gap between the choices, it makes the calculation a bit different. Can they make money doing that? I mean, you can get anything you want just by overpaying for it. But, <laughs> you know, that, that's not a winning strategy long term. We'll see. We'll see. Yeah, and we'll see how it goes. Another thing that's, that should be considered is that even though they might be paying up in terms of price, there's other downside protections that go into late stage financing that don't get published in, in TechCrunch, right? So things like uh, uh, liquidity preference, where they get their money back first, or... Yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay. I've noticed this in Japan, and I don't know if it's uniquely Japanese, but a lot of times, like when I'm in San Francisco, I'll be talking to a young IoT startup founding team. It'll be like three smart guys in their 20s. (laughs) And that's great, but in Japan, I'll meet like a new... IoT founding team, and it'll be like two smart guys in their 20s and one guy from in his 50s from Nissan <laughs> who understands supply chain. Right. And, and it's an interesting team. It's an interesting right. dynamic. Right. Yeah, that diversity is important, right? They, they all bring different things to the table. But uh, yeah, I mean, what I want to emphasize is that the caliber of entrepreneurs in the market have, has increased quite a bit. And so it's sort of this nice combination of there's opportunity and there's also entrepreneurs that are pursuing those opportunities. So that's tended to be where we've invested. I get a lot of questions from foreign startup founders in Japan who are trying to raise money. What's your best advice for them? Yeah, I I raise money as a foreigner in Japan, Right. right? Both as a fund manager, but also as an entrepreneur. And there are different things to think about. So one is if you can't speak Japanese, I think it's going to be really hard, really, really hard. Not just from a fundraising standpoint, but even from a hiring and standpoint and managing standpoint and really understanding what's going on um, because there are some things that sort of can't really transcend this, this language barrier uh, and they're closely related to culture and how you'd have to understand what, what's really going on in particular situations. So if you've got someone who doesn't speak Japanese reasonably well, you're just questioning whether this person will be able to execute will be able to execute. I'm not saying that they can execute. I'm just saying that they'll, it, that some areas will be an uphill battle. So the trade-off, what they have to do is they have to have something that is extraordinary that other Japanese co-founders or members would not have. So this could be like engineering prowess or if it's related to something outside Japan where they, where they pull their weight is relationships outside Japan, mm-hmm. right? And so something unique that no other Japanese member could could bring to the table. In any case, I would very much focus on finding a strong Japanese co-founder. Now, let's say that you do speak Japanese. There are examples of foreigners in Japan that speak fluent Japanese that have succeeded as entrepreneurs in Japan. And so it's less of an issue, but at the same time, I do think it helps to have Japanese within the core team so that uh, you have that sort of diversity of thought And let's face it, there's also chemistry between certain investors and certain business partners. As you go out into the market and you fundraise and you look for business partners, there are some people that will be very open to working with foreigners and others where, honestly, there's probably a little subtle racism there, right? And in order, you can complain about it all you want, 
but your goal as a founder is to break through those walls, right? And so you do it by any, any means necessary. And if that means that you need to get core members of your team that are Japanese, so be it. Because after you can break those barriers, then you become the example so that you can break those stereotypes. Makes sense. Let's talk about Japan in general. One of the most common metrics that's used when it, in comparing Japan to the U.S. is the, the total amount of money invested in venture capital. Right. And, I mean, the U.S., even if you adjust it for, like, GDP and for population size, it's, like, 15 times, 20 times larger than what's invested in Japan. Right. Is that a good thing, a bad thing, a, a completely irrelevant thing? I, I think it's a bad thing. So in places like U.S. or especially China... So China has gone from zero to like 50 billion or maybe more than that. I don't know the updated numbers, but within a very short time. So they've caught up with the U.S. in terms of venture funding. And there is a lot of bullshit that gets funded in those markets, right? Oh, absolutely. Um, absolutely. And yeah, and that's, that's fine. Uh, that's okay. Because a lot gets funded and you throw a lot of things at the wall and some of them will stick, right? And so out of that, you get Tencent, uh, you get Uber, you get these huge winners that surpass anything that uh, you've lost. And so that is sort of like the mindset that needs to be transported to Japan. And in Japan, I think that there's a lot of loss aversion that is not necessarily rational. And considering the size of the market, we should at least be at 10 billion invested in, in, in startups in Japan. So, so what's holding it back? Is it really just that mindset or is it a, also a lack of high quality startups or institutional money or is it really just that attitude? I think it, there's, there's probably a confluence of factors. One is historically you haven't had huge, huge exits like you've seen in other markets. That is also starting to change. So we're, we're getting some, some hits on the scoreboard. And, uh, and then also we're seeing more capital coming into the market. And where the big capital is, is in the institutional side. And we're finally just getting that unlocked, right? So, you know, Globus is raised from institutional for a while, but now like the percentage from institutional has, has increased quite a bit. Global Brain, I believe, has also gone that direction. Uh, half of our fund is institutional. And so like now it's changing. And so once we can unlock that capital, that'll bring more capital to fund these entrepreneurs. Now, on the entrepreneur side, the caliber of entrepreneurs have also gone up, as I mentioned. So now you have smart people with capital behind them to build important companies. And so it's sort of this snowball effect. And I think we're sort of in this positive cycle in Japan where there's funding for entrepreneurs and they're pursuing big ideas and therefore there will be bigger and bigger exits. Okay, so you think we're just going to see a steady, solid growth we're in this virtuous cycle now. Yeah, I think that uh, when things happen in Japan, they happen very quickly. Yeah. Now, with the disclaimer that they ha what, things happen in Japan very slowly, except when they happen very quickly. <laughs> right, right. And so I'll give you an example. Cashless payments. Cashless payments in Japan. So everyone was always talking about, like, oh, my God, Japan loves cash, and they're never going to give up cash and all that stuff. And then all of a sudden, everyone is like dumping money into cashless payments, right? You have PayPay, you have LimePay, uh, you have Origami, you have like lots of others, right? There's this flood of capital and this flood of interest in cashless payments. And so I think that now we're, we're probably going to see a trigger where cashless payments will be the norm. I'll give you an example. Someone was telling me the other day that he, he was in you know, the middle of nowhere and somewhere in Japan, in Inaka. And he went to this udon place, and they accepted either cash or PayPay. <laughs> <laughs> but no credit no cards. No credit cards. No credit cards. Yeah, I've, I've found this to be true in Japan for so long. Anytime someone tells you that Japanese will never do X for cultural reasons, there's a right. great business opportunity. Right. So yeah. even during the dot-com boom... People were saying Japanese will never buy things online because they prefer to go to the high-touch department right. stores. Right. It's a bunch of bullshit, yeah, right? I mean, they won't use Facebook. Okay, right. sure. Now, now 20 million plus use Facebook in Japan. Um, online auctions, Japan, Japanese will never buy used goods. Yahoo auctions is huge. Right, right. Yeah, so that's, that's all bullshit. Now, it's just a question of timing. It might come slower, right? So that, that is 
a question that we ask as investors is we might know that eventually it'll happen. We just have to time it whether you know this is the time or not. And so cashless payments, if we had bet on it 10 years ago, probably would have been a, a dud. But now it seems like it's a possibility. All right. Well, listen, James, before we wrap up, I want to ask you what I call my magic wand question, which you know well. <laughs> and that is, if I gave you a magic wand and I told you you could change one thing about Japan, anything at all, the education system, the way people think about risk, the availability of risk capital, anything at all to make it better for startups and innovation in Japan, what would you change? One, if I was, uh, was Abe-san right now, I would come up with a program that either requires or strongly encourages students in Japan to study abroad. Because I think that has profound effects on multiple different, in multiple different areas for Japan broadly and also for those indivi- individuals. One is, of course, learning another language. If you learn English, I think that opens up a lot of doors for you. And, uh, and as, a, as a country that can interact with more people, I think that's net positive. The other thing that's important to note is that through those study abroad experiences, they will build valuable uh, relationships that will lead to potential business relationships down the road that will advance the economy in Japan. And so I would strongly encourage that side. The third part that I think is important is that it opens your mind beyond Japan. And I think that when people experience uh, cultures and, and circumstances completely out of their norm, it gives them a more uh, a broader perspective on uh, the world in general and also what is possible. So that, that third reason that I, w- I want to dig down on a bit. So is that just a different approach to problem solving or just giving someone an acknowledgement that there are other ways of doing things and being more open-minded in general? Or right. I, I think that's what it is. If you, if you grow up in one place and have this bubble and are conditioned to think that this is the way the world is and this is the way that you should think and you're never exposed to other ways of thinking, then you will forever be trapped in that. And if you are thrown into an environment where it's completely different, it's like, actually, no, you don't necessarily need to be polite to your boss. You can challenge him. You know, um, that will change your mindset, right? It's not ne- you won't necessarily come back to Japan and be a, a douchebag to your boss, right? But you will sort of start start questioning all these things that you've been told and try to seek truth within that. And there might be multiple angles. In Japan, might have been right all along, but you'll never know unless you're exposed to other areas. Now. Unfortunately, that trend seems to be going in the, the wrong direction. There's fewer and fewer Japanese studying abroad now. I know, yeah, yeah, and it's a shame. It's a, it's a real shame, but I think that for Japan uh, to advance, uh, I think that's important. And, you know, it should be noted that China and Korea have a lot of study abroad students. Yeah. Um, the, you know, the, the schools in the U.S. or in, in other you know, places like U.K. are flooded with students from those countries. So... Um, it's a shame. Korea and China are, are, are benefiting from that. While the number of Japanese students studying abroad is going down, we're seeing a huge increase in the number of foreign students studying in Japan. Right. Do you think that could provide some of the same effect of opening people up to new ideas and new ways of thinking? Yeah, I think, I think that's another level, a lever that's, that, that can be pulled, and it's already being pulled, right? So... That is uh, one way to solve it, and but it's being solved out of necessity, right? Because you have a declining population and, right. and you don't have enough people, and so um, yes, it, I think that will be a positive fact for Japan. I mean, we're certainly seeing the results. I mean, if you're getting 200, 300 startup applications every month, it means people are thinking differently about things. They are they are coming up with new ideas and challenging the status quo. Right. Yeah. There's definitely uh, well. I don't want to say definitely because I don't know what I wasn't a VC five ten years ago, so I don't I don't know whether it's more or less than it would have been if we had started earlier. But I do feel that we are getting more interest, but also we're seeing more uh, investable companies in the market. So it's a harder decision right now as to like which ones we invest in because there's actually a lot of good options now. That's a good problem to have. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, James. Thanks so much. I really appreciate you sitting down with me. No problem. Thanks so much. Cheers. And we're back. Well, I think our discussions and definitions of pre-seed, seed, seed, post-seed, pre-series A, and series A rounds were 
about as clear as mud, but it covered the ground. Like so many other terms in the startup world, these terms don't really have a fixed meaning. They're a form of marketing. And in the startup world, any important term will be broadened to the point where it doesn't really convey meaning anymore. Consider, for example, the terms artificial intelligence, virtual reality, big data, blockchain, or Internet of Things. Now, if you want to stay informed or even stay sane when talking about startups, you really need to simply ignore the terminology that's being thrown around completely and look at the problem the company is solving and the relationship they have with their customers. And how James and Coral Capital chose to define their customers is interesting. And I think more than anything else, it speaks to how venture capital is changing in Japan. In most businesses, whoever gives you the money, they are your customer. And that's how venture capital had always worked in Japan. And it made sense when risk capital was scarce. But when risk capital is abundant and VCs start having to compete with each other to invest in startups, well, then it makes sense to start considering the startups to be your customers and focusing on them. You'll get into the better deals, and if you do it right, you help your startup succeed, and that will lead to higher returns. On the flip side, if you're running a fund and your returns are poor, well then even the best relationships with your investors aren't going to help you out that much. Your investors are looking for returns. Of course, all this might change in the future. The startup industry is incredibly cyclical. There will be a time in the near, or maybe the distant future, where investment capital once again becomes scarce. And then those relationships with investors will become more important. But regardless, focusing on startup growth seems like the right way forward. That's what drives the large returns. And while close institutional connections are great, nothing succeeds like success. If you want to talk more about fundraising or venture capital, James and I would love to hear from you. So come by disruptingjapan.com slash show 145 and let's talk about it. If you leave a comment, I guarantee you that James and I, or maybe both, will respond. And hey, if you get the chance, check us out on LinkedIn or Facebook. But even better, if you love the show, tell people about it. Disrupting Japan has grown not by social media marketing or advertising, but because listeners like you enjoy it and tell their friends about it. But most of all, thanks for listening. And thank you for letting people interested in Japanese startups know about the show. I'm Tim Romero, and thanks for listening to Disrupting Japan.